Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys who use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, June 11th, 2013. Yep, I'm looking for a theme here today. Um, There isn't one. Thank you for tuning in or listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and of all places, Christian churches or churches that claim allegiance to Jesus Christ, allegiance to his word. Uh, The pastors claim to be disciples or followers of Christ or Christians, and yet it's as if they have no clue what the Bible says, nor are they really all that interested in taking the time to learn what the Bible says. They uh, find it more, um, well, how shall I put it, practical, if you would, in order to draw a larger crowd. They find it very practical to just, you know, kind of skip along the surface of Scripture and and make it say things that, well, will help boost your ego or make you feel better about yourself, uh, maybe help your self-esteem or things like that, and and, and narcissistically kind of tell you what you want to hear. And by doing so, what they're really doing is deceiving you and uh, not telling you the truth. And when they're not telling you the truth, you're not hearing the good news. You're not hearing God's law. And as a result of it, the gospel doesn't really make any sense. And you're being taught false doctrine rather than sound doctrine. And you're being blown hither and yon by every strange wind of doctrine and theology that's blowing through the church. And it's not God, the Holy Spirit, who's the source of that wind. It's really just the bloviated... Uh, blusterings of, well, Baal and his demons, if you know what I mean. I I was trying to do an alliteration there. But um, anyway, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. As I said when we were coming into the program, today's program does not have a theme. Today is going to be all over the map. In fact, that might be the theme. It's just all over the map, blown hither and yon. Today we're going to be blown everywhere. (laughs) 
in fighting for the faith. We'll start off in one place and then we'll be blown to another direction and then we'll be blown another direction and then we'll put something good in there and then we'll be blown another. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> Batten down the hatches. Today's episode of Fighting for the Faith could, <laughs> could cause you to be blown all over the place. Just saying, you know, it's just one of those things. In fact, what, um, <laughs> man. <laughs> Uh, in fact, I, I, I'm thinking, well, should I start off with this or not? Yeah, we probably, no, tell you what, I, I should tell you what we're going to do today. I really should tell you what we're going to do and then we'll go, we'll do it. And then you'll, you'll at least have the ability to prepare yourself so that, you know, you don't get seasick on today's episode of fighting for the faith. Yeah. Here at pirate Christian radio, we try to keep the ship steady as she goes and uh, and not try to get out onto the high seas in such a way where there's swells and we're and storms blowing this way and that way, so as not to cause you to hurl your lunch while listening to fight, Fighting for the Faith. You, you get what I'm saying. So what we're going to do today, we're going to start off by doing a quick crossing church update. Um <laughs> How do I put this? Um, we're not going to, when we do our update, we're not going to play our update music for this because it's just a quick crossing church update. But you know what's coming up this weekend, right? Um, yeah, I know. You're thinking, hey, it's the Issues Etc. conference and you're going to be speaking at it. Yeah, I, yeah, that is this weekend, by the way. And uh, I will be speaking this Saturday at the Issues Etc. conference. If you want to uh, attend that conference, uh, you know, it's going to be. Uh, in the Illinois side of the, you know, in the greater uh, St. Louis area, but uh, yeah, get on issuesetc.org, e- e- issuesetc.org, and click on their conference information uh, if you are interested in attending. I will be speaking. I'll be making a case against postmodernism. And what's really funny, <clears throat> I've got 45 minutes to make the case. And uh, and uh, Jeff Schwartz of Issues Etc. asked if I'd be willing to, you know, save enough room for maybe ten to fifteen minutes of of question and answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, T- tough topic, by the way. Uh, postmodernity doesn't make a lot of sense to most people anyway. So, uh, and I'm going to try to make the case that the, it's become the default setting in the prime, in, you know, in the main culture out there, and also within, you know, much of evangelicalism. And as a result of it, that's one of the reasons why we have the problems that we have. But uh, understanding postmodernity is not easy because it's an irrational worldview. It's based upon an irrational, experiential, uh, philosophical worldview that seeks to deconstruct language as a means of kind of blowing up all authority. And authority doesn't really rise above the level of a community. So you you know you experience truth in conversation within community, whatever that means within a postmodern context. At least that's how the church understands it. Understands it. Yeah, think about uh, um, Mark Driscoll's tribal Christianity kind of concept. But anyway, but this weekend is uh, on 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 Sunday. It's Father's Day and. Um, it's not nearly as big as Mother's Day, um, and you know, which I, I kind of get and understand. I mean, uh, you know, it's not like you know if you forget Father's Day, your father's going to be in the fetal position, sucking his thumb over in the corner while watching uh, the the uh, the U.S. Open golf tournament, going uh, they didn't remember Father's Day, and you know, it, <laughs> it's it's really not like that. Um, and you know, I of course I'm always thankful that you know my kids recognize. Father's Day, but you know we don't at my church. Yeah, we don't even mention it during the church service. Same same with Mother's Day. Mother's Day doesn't even come up on the radar. The reason why these are these are not um, Christian holidays, if you would. These are kind of like Americanized Hallmark type of things, and we got more important stuff to do. So at our church, you know, 
When I show up at church on Sunday morning, we're not going to be talking about Father's Day. You know, in fact, our pastor, I'm yeah, pretty sure he's going to do exactly what he did on Mother's Day. You ready for this? He's going to look at the assigned text that's given to him. That's a wonderful thing about electionary, though, by the way, folks. If uh, if you uh, really want to get away from <laughs> from the tyranny of the innovative, and that's a good way to put it, the tyranny of the innovative, creative pastor, you know, who ends up thinking he's so creative that he ends up just copying sermons from, you know, Andy Stanley and Stephen Furtick and Perry Noble and those guys. <clears throat> yeah, because that's really innovative. Um, what you do is you take away the pastor, uh, you take away his ability to choose what he's going to preach on and you give him a lectionary. You say, okay, here's for the next three years, every single passage that we will be reading in church, the days that we will be uh, reading them in church, and you can pick between either the Old Testament lesson, the epistle, or the gospel lesson, and you don't have any other choices here. This is what you're going to preach on. And you know what, you, what that does is it takes away the tyranny of the innovative, and it requires the pastor to spend his time studying God's Word so that he can speak, well— um, knowledgeably when it comes to rightly handling God's word and stuff like that. Just saying, if you're, if you're looking for a, a way to get away from the tyranny of the innovative, find a good liturgical confessional Lutheran congregation whose pastor is bound to the lectionary, and if he deviates from it, the elders within the church are going to have his head on a platter. Yeah, that's the place to be. Let me tell you, you know what's going to happen then? Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you're going to hear God's word, and your pastor's going to preach the word, and he's going to tell you what those texts say and what they mean, and he's going to point to Jesus from it, and it's going to be large swaths of scripture you know at the congregation i serve at we minimum three chapters a sunday three chapters none of this one verse here half of a sentence there maybe you know a subordinate clause out of context here woven to, no 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 pastor gets up and we hear the old testament text which generally ties into the gospel reading which is fascinating to figure that out um, and then we get an epistle text. Yep. And it's usually about a chapter long, you know, and then we hear a gospel text. And oftentimes those can be a chapter long, maybe a little bit less. But the point is, is that we get large swaths of, of scripture Sunday after Sunday. And you know what that does is it causes you to have a good understanding of scripture. It causes you to have a reverence and a respect for what Scripture says. It it combats biblical illiteracy like you wouldn't believe. I mean, you know, think of it this way, okay? Who is more likely to become biblically literate, okay? You know, we'll, we'll use a test case here. Let's just, just think hypothetically with me, if you would, okay? you got, over here, you've got John Doe, and over there, you've got Jane Doe, okay? Two diff completely different people, and John Doe decides, you know what? He's really decided that he's got to go to that rockin' hip, seeker-driven church with the mega pastor with the Justin Bieber haircut. Yeah, that guy, and, you know, the one who's got all the different books out there about, you know, taking Old Testament passages and reading himself into all of them. Yeah, he, so he goes to that church, and you know what happens is that every single Sunday he gets about four verses out of context from different parts of the Bible, okay? So that's John Doe. Jane Doe, she decides that she's going to go to one of those, you know, traditional churches. And you know what they have there? They have a hymnal. And you know what they do there? They sing hymns. And and the pastor and the folks there don't mind singing every stanza of every hymn. They don't do this hopscotch thing, you know, well, we're only singing stanzas one 
uh, three and five. No, they actually take the time to, you know, sing through all of the stanzas. And the pastor at that traditional church has a lectionary that he that he basically has a sign text. And every single Sunday, anywhere from two and a half to three chapters of scripture are, are read and 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 at least one of those chapters is is in depth preached on and then in the Sunday school the pastor oftentimes will go back to the old testament text and really flesh out what's going on there okay so any given sunday uh, jane doe is is exposed to two and a half to three chapters of the bible and if she stays for sunday school two of those chapters are really drilled down in depth okay and so they both, by some miracle, both started attending these churches on exactly the same day, okay? And so how long will it take for Jane Doe to become biblically literate and really understand what Scripture says as opposed to John Doe? Well, I would argue that Jane Doe is going to become biblically illiterate very quickly. In fact, so quickly that within two to three years, she's already heard all of Scripture, okay? And in two to three years, she's had all of the major theological categories and doctrinal categories of the Bible um, dealt with in depth three times. Because if you got a good lectionary, the, every single year, all of the primary you know, seedbed foundational doctrinal categories are covered in a, in a one-year period. But she's now done that three years running, and she's biblically illiterate. Well, what happens to John Doe, you know, after two and a half, three years of going to a seeker-driven church where every Sunday he's only exposed to, you know, four or five verses, and each verse is out of context and, and or whatever? How long will it take uh, John Doe to become biblically literate as opposed to Jane Doe? Well, I would say that, actually, I would argue that John Doe, if that's all he's getting, he'll never become biblically illiterate. Never. He'll actually never achieve biblical literacy. In fact, he is at that point in danger of being blown hither and yon, yon by all of the major winds of uh, false theology and doctrine blowing through the evangelical churches. Whereas Jane Doe, you know, in th- that short amount of time, she's to the point where she understands scripture well enough that she now is actually kind of confident about what it says and can communicate law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins lucidly, confidently, and share the gospel with her friends and family. Whereas John Doe, yeah, he still continues to, well, basically be a biblical neophyte, if you know what I mean. I would say, you know, when it comes to really doing the job of discipling a Christian, there's no comparison, absolutely no comparison, hands down, a traditional church that has a lectionary and takes the creativity you know, away from the pastor and assigns the text to him, you're going to do far better as a Christian disciple in a, in a church like that than you are in the seeker-driven um, church. So, so much so that there's really no comparison. Yeah, you get what I'm saying. So anyway, this. So here's what we're, let me go back. I'm talking about what we're going to talk about on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Of course, I distracted myself. I do that, but uh, we're going to take a quick peek at the um, the video um, for <clears throat> inviting uh, dads to come to the Crossing Church this <laughs> Sunday. Um, then we'll switch gears. We have a Heath Mooneyhan update, and uh, man. 
this guy is <laughs> just a veritable deep well of abysmal ideas. He has no clue what he's talking about. And of course, uh, we're going to be listening to Heath Mooneyhan sharing his insights regarding the next generation. Uh, during you know, he did this just recently during a sermon over at his church, Ignite Church in Joplin, Missouri. And uh, we'll take a quick break after that. We'll come back. We'll, we've got a quick uh, Albert Muller update. If you didn't hear the June 3rd episode of Albert Muller's uh, The Briefing, oh, man. I'm going to play for you just a quick segment where he talks about the ELCA. That would be the Lutheran in name only Lutheran branch of – it's not even Lutheranism uh, – and how they have um, – well, just elected their first openly gay uh, bishop in the ELCA, and Albert Muller's commentary on it is just brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It's lucid. It is terse in a good way, and it it just makes the point. He does a very good job. I'm going to play that for you. Um, then we got we have a Paula White update. Paula White, the way to God's favor, and on her uh, television show, she recently had a broadcast talking about the way. For you to have God's favor, we're going to chronicle her false teaching and mishandling of God's word. And uh, then in hour number two, um, we are going to be listening to what I would consider kind of the quintessential uh, seeker-driven sermon on this idea that the church is a movement. And the church is not for uh, uh, believers, but the church is for unbelievers. So we're going to be going to onechurch.tv's. Uh, a podcast of their sermon and uh, to their sermon series entitled Movement, Church is for Everyone. And we're going to biblically demonstrate that they have a deficient understanding of, number one, the church. Number two, the office of pastor. Yeah, you know, who do who do pastors uh, biblically exist to serve? That's a, a question that we will take a look at as we uh, listen to this um, really bad sermon. And I would just ask the question, what if... These guys who claim that the church is a movement have it all wrong. What if it's not that? What if it's, well, a visible manifestation here on earth of Christ's kingdom, not a movement? In other words, um, you know, I would say the scriptures say that we are all ambassadors. Well, the church really then would be an embassy, wouldn't it? That would be the better model, not movement. Movements are like fascism. Fascism fascism was a movement. Um, Communism was a movement. Yeah, I don't think the church is a movement. Yeah, I, th- I think we need to get away from that idea. I think it's uh, really, really bad. But anyway, that's what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And since we're starting off with a Heath Mooneyhan update, as we listen to him share his deep insights regarding the next generation, um, <clears throat> here's uh, here's our Heath Mooneyhan update music. Get up again Cause I'm the urban spaceman, baby I'm making out 
right, yeah. All right, we're going to pause that music right there as we uh, tune in to uh, Heath Mooneyhan's uh, recently preached sermon entitled, What If? What If? And uh, in this particular um, sermon, um, <laughs> uh, Heath Mooneyhan shares with us his lucid, in-depth insights uh, regarding the next generation, which I find to be rather laughable and worth passing along. So without any further ado, here is Heath Mooneyhan and uh, his final week of his sermon series entitled, What If? Final week of what if talking about you know how we empower and lead the next generation so what i want to do today is maybe just give some like closing thoughts so here's what i want to do i'm going to end up speaking to those of you that are i don't know ages 12 to all the way through college um something like that maybe your your parents or us older people can get something from this too I, i doubt it just maybe but i want to talk to you guys this morning like if i had 20 minutes of your time of what i would say to you this younger generation this is probably along the lines of what i would say to you the first thing that i would say about this generation is that the next generation doesn't need rules to live by (laughs) really and what deep spiritual insight have you got that tells us, you know, that the next generation, they don't need any rules to live by. <laughs> Who knew? I mean, that right amongst us, it, you know, the up-and-coming generation, these are kids who've apparently overcome the problem of our sinful nature. They don't need any rules whatsoever. No laws to govern them. No. No rules. No, no none of that. This is... <laughs> Not only is this ridiculous, it's not even biblical because every single human being, according to Scripture, is born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. And the purpose of God's law, actually there's three primary purposes. Uh, purpose number one is to curb evil. This is the use used uh, by the government. Okay, So the idea here is, is that God has established government, put the sword in the hand of the government to punish evildoers as a means of putting the brakes on evil, if you would, keeping it at bay, keeping it in check. That's the idea. That's one of the uses of the law. And I don't see the up-and-coming generation as somehow not needing that, do you? Second use of the law, uh, which is the primary use, is to show us our sin. This is what Romans says, that the law shows us our sin and our need for a Savior. Okay? Third use of the law is only for Christians, only applies to Christians, and that is is that God's law shows us what a good work is because Christians are those who have been set free in Christ to bondage to sin, death, and the devil. And therefore, since we're set free from sin, sin is slavery, it's not freedom, we then can walk in true freedom. And in order to do that, we need to know what a good work is, and the law shows us what a good work is. Backhanded way at that. But those are the primary uses of the law. And if they didn't, if well, the up-and-coming generation doesn't need rules and regulations, they don't need the Ten Commandments then, do they? Yeah, if you have a pastor that is this completely um, clueless as to what the Bible really says, you don't really have a pastor. You have, well, as people have described um, Heath Mooneyhan here at Fighting for the Faith, they've described him as an overgrown frat boy. They need a call to live for They don't need any more rules to live by. We can't pass down rules and regulations, the list of do's and don'ts. 
They don't need any of that stuff. They literally need a call to live for. This is yeah, okay. And again, where are you getting this from? Because that's saying in the Bible. This is the most... Uh, this generation is tricky because, like, we're one generation away from potentially losing the gospel altogether. Now, I would agree with that, but it's because of pastors like Heath Mooneyhan that that's the case. Or... We're one generation away for seeing amazing advancements for the gospel like no other generation in history has ever done. And it's up to us to lead this generation well. It's to hand off the baton well to these guys. It's to train them in, in the ways and the things that are important in life. And then, Yeah, that would require you to actually open up the Bible and preach it in context. You know, stuff like that that the seeker-driven guys like yourself don't actually do. The important things aren't the rules. The... The important thing is, like, love your neighbor. How about that? You know, God does say that in the Bible, but we... Um, that's a rule. <laughs> uh, Jesus said all the law and the prophets are summed up in the two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a rule. <laughs> Man. We like to forget that part. We like to just pick and choose in the Bible what feels good to us. And so the problem sometimes is we can, we can show up to church and we can tithe and we can serve and, and we can get all of our little gold stars and stuff, but we refuse to love our neighbors sometimes. It's got to break the heart of God. And um, yeah, there's a reason why that happens is because every human being is born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God and needs to repent and be forgiven um, through the shed blood of Christ, by trusting in him and the promises of his mercy. Uh, that's how human beings are by nature. We're sinners. And this other generation, this new generation coming up behind us, does not care about the things that the older generation cared about. I was trying to explain this to a, to a couple friends of mine in Oklahoma. I said, yeah, my question is, where are you getting this from again? You're just making all these pontifications about the up-and-coming generation. What are you reading uh, to to make these uh, assertions and allegations and things like that? I said, you know, man, this this generation's passionate, passionate. It's a unique generation because they've grown up in such a fake plastic world that they've had the infor- the world at their hands. Kids at the age of like seven right now know a lot. I mean, they're they're certain. My three year old is getting on my iPhone and surfing the web. It's And what exactly does that prove? Scary. That he knows how to operate all this stuff. And I try to give him advice, and he's telling me what's up. And so, I mean, it, it's scary what our kids have at their fingertips. And, you know, it used to be like, uh, I don't know, it's just like the generation before was... They're all about, and I appreciate and honor everything that they've done, but it, it was all about how n- not how much stuff could we accumulate, how much, um, you know, in the church world it equated to mass buildings. Um, let's build it bigger and badder than anybody else. Let's. And yet you're a seeker-driven pastor, and that's where most of the mega churches come from. Again, this is just weird. Let's uh, show, build these huge monuments. But this gen- next generation, they don't care about that. They don't care about the buildings. They're passionate about Jesus. 
They're passionate about helping the hurting. We got kids out there. They are, huh? The whole generation. Right. Uh huh. Yeah, they're completely altruistic and totally not selfish at all. Uh huh. Show me these kids. I'd like to meet their parents. Right now, they'll go spend $12 on a latte to save a dolphin somewhere because they're passionate about helping. They feel like they're helping. And if we don't guide them in the right direction, there are going to be a lot of free-loving hippies out there, and this world's going to go a little crazy. Well, there you go. The uh, insights of Heath Mooneyhan into what the next generation needs and what they're all about. I wake up every morning with a smile upon my face. My natural exuberance spills out all over the place. First break, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python. Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, 
ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our cheap weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief ex- weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose uh, uh, vision. Okay. And- okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Mark your calendar now for April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. You see, it's not too soon to be making your plans, saving your pennies, and asking for work off April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the 11th annual Branson Worldview Weekend. This past year, we had people from all over the country and actually from other countries join us in the beautiful rolling hills of Branson, Missouri. So if you're looking to attend the premiere Understanding the Times Biblical Worldview Weekend and join us April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the Branson Worldview Weekend. It's for all ages. Children 11 and under are free. We also have a group rate and a family rate. The Worldview Weekends have been around since 1993. So we're one of the oldest Biblical Worldview conferences in America. So mark your calendar now for Branson, Missouri, April 25, 26, and 27, 2014.
warning, if it's questionable as to whether or not your pastor actually graduated from the fourth grade, you probably need to find a real church. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, as promised, I've got a quick a Crossing Church update. This is the audio from their promotional video for their Father's Day service coming up this Sunday called Bring Your Dad Weekend at the Crossing. Just listen in. Chopping wood. Now, these are uh, three lumberjack guys, one with a big burly beard, you know. I tell you, I'm so manly, I can do this all day long. Pretty manly. I'm so manly, I want to throw the grizzly bear all the way to Texas. Texas? All right. Manly. Pretty far, too. Man, I'm so manly, I don't even use my brakes. (laughs) You mean the coward pedals? (laughs) (laughs) I'm so manly, I'd take a knife to a gunfight. And I'd still use my fist. Oh, man. That's Shoot. manly. That's manly. Yeah. And I'm so manly, I go to church. Really? Oh, yeah. Bring Your Dad Weekend is coming to the Crossing Church, June 15th and 16th. We're going all out. This service is so manly, it's going to put the sir in sir, man. We got competitions, awesome entertainment. Wait, they got competitions and awesome entertainment? Yeah, that sounds like church. And the Crossing Band will be performing Leonard Skinner. You better bring your man. And the Crossing Church will be performing Leonard Skinner. Yeah, I'll pass. Because you're about to get a full dose of church osterone. Because we're not just doing ministry, we're doing manistry. Bring your dad weekend, the manliest thing since, uh, well, man, bring him. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, like I said, I'll be uh, passing. Moving along. From the albertmuller.com website from his podcast called The, uh, the Briefing, uh, the episode of June, uh, June 3rd, 2013, <clears throat> I'll be playing a brief segment here as uh, Albert Muller weighs in regarding the ELCA. Uh, that would be the Evangelical, quote, Lutheran, unquote, church in America uh, in their election of their first openly gay bishop. Um, Rather than me commenting, I'll just let Albert Mueller make the case. I think he does a fine, fine job here. Listen in. As the summer season approaches, you can count on several denominational meetings occurring. Most American denominations, especially those of any size, are holding rather significant national conventions, and virtually every one of these will report news of some form, and some of this will, of course, be of significance. 
As Catherine Salant reports already, even before the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America has held its meeting, one of the regions of that body has elected the church's first openly gay bishop. Los Angeles Times reports that a North Hollywood theology professor ordained just two years ago after the ELCA, that's the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, dropped its ban on same-sex ministers, was elected just this past Friday as the church's first openly gay bishop. The Reverend R. Guy Irwin is not only an openly gay bishop, he is living in a partnered relationship with a homosexual man. He is now elected to a six-year term to be the bishop of the Southwest California Senate. That includes the greater Los Angeles area. As reporter Catherine Salant reported, the historic vote came Friday during a three-day assembly of the Senate held in Woodland Hills, California. She cites Emily Eastwood as saying that Irwin's election marks a welcome turning point for the congregation's gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered members. By the way, Emily Eastwood is the executive director of Reconciling Works, an arm of the church that has worked for decades to lift the ban on gay and lesbian clergy. Emily Eastwood also said one of our own has been chosen not in spite of being gay, but because he is truly gifted and skilled for the office. Once again, we are proud to be Lutherans, end quote. At this point, what we need to recognize is that even though the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America has a Lutheran heritage and even has Lutheran in its name, it is by this act and by many prior acts distancing itself by light years from the actual faith and conviction of Martin Luther, the great Lutheran reformer of the 16th century. The Evangelical Lutheran Church is the largest denomination of Lutherans in the United States. It was the product of a merger that went back in 1987 However, it is the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, founded in 1847, that is the most significant continuing confessional body of Lutherans. The distinction between the confessional and the mainline denominations is not that they have official confessions. Even the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America still has a confessional statement. The issue is whether that statement continues in terms of the actual Lutheran theological tradition and whether it is applied in a regulative manner. Those Lutherans continuing to be Lutherans in theology are found in the conservative denominations, such as the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. By taking this action last Friday, this Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America has demonstrated itself to be neither evangelical nor Lutheran. And as G.K. Testerson might say, not a church either. That just leaves them in America. <laughs> I think that was well said. The Evangelical Lutheran Church is in America is neither evangelical nor is it Lutheran, and it's definitely not a church. That just mean, makes them in America. Well said, and I love the distinction that Dr. Muller made between the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, of which I am a part, and uh, the ELCA, which they're not even Lutheran. They're Lutheran in name only. Moving along. Time for a Paula White update. Yes, she does. It's very difficult to twist God's word to make this kind of money.
That's uh, Donna Summers. Uh, she works hard for the money. Yeah, I think that's very appropriate for Paula White. It, it takes a lot of work, folks. I mean, a lot of work to twist God's word into a pretzel in order to make a really, really good living at it and turn yourself into, you know, a multi-multi-millionaire through, you know, pilfering people by selling them, you know, false doctrine and telling them what they want to hear and blaming it on God. If Paula, she's one of the hardest working ones out there, as you will soon see. Here's Paula White talking about the way for you to have God's favor. Welcome to Paula today. Your season is about to shift. Favor is about to flow in your life. It is? It is? Oh, okay. Just one phone call, one God moment, being at the right place at the right time can shift everything around in your life. I don't care what the past has looked like. God is not a man that he should lie. And this month we're dealing with fruitfulness. That's the word the Lord put in our spirit. God put the word fruitfulness in, in your spirit. Oh, that's not weird at all. And fruitfulness literally, Genesis one twenty two says God blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, that's from Genesis. And the fruitful and multiply thing, that means, that means make babies. Yeah, that's what that means. Now, when God blesses you, you are blessed. To be fruitful means to bear fruit, to bring forth fruit, to produce, to increase to bring forth an abundance. Uh-huh. You know, now you're just like pouring every single definition of the word fruitful into the word. Um, fruitful means what it means in context. So in context, it could mean to bear fruit. It could mean to bring forth fruit or to produce or to increase. It depends on the context in which it's used. And the context you just gave us from Genesis where God said, be fruitful and multiply. That was talking about, you know, making babies. That's what that was referring to. Whatever the lack has been in your life. Whatever has kept you back, confined you, restricted you. Well, I, I don't lack babies. You know, I've got, I have three of them and they're fine, you know. I decree that it's about to shift in your life. No, I don't need any more babies. That you're going to bring forth an abundance in your spirit, in your relationships. Oh, I'm going to bring forth babies in my spirit. Got it. This teaching doesn't make any sense to me. In your finances, in your call, in your purpose, in your dream, in your destiny. Mm, my dream and my my density. Got it. All right. And favor is a necessary part of that. Okay. And how, how do you figure? So we're going to look at what is favor? How do I get favor? How do I keep favor? And why is favor necessary for the call and the purpose of God on my life? Oh, yeah. First off. So what passage are you going to go to that says in order for you to have, you know, to fulfill the call and the purpose that God has in your life, you need favor. What passage will you go to that says that in context and clearly lays this teaching that you're about to give us out in no uncertain terms so that we can see that this is sound doctrine based upon clear passages and didactic teaching. Favor is an absolute necessary ingredient for you to fulfill the call of God. Okay. Um, and, and again, what passage says this? For you to fulfill the assignment of God. There are some places that you... What assignment has God given me? You'll never be able to get to without the favor of God. Luke chapter 2, verse 41 through 52. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Now his parents... Yeah, Luke chapter 2, 41 through 52, you're right. This is talking about Jesus. 
Oh boy, why do I feel like I'm going to hear a narcissistic twisting of this passage where it's no longer at the end of this going to be about Jesus, it's going to be about me or you or her. Parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. It came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking questions. And all that heard him were astonished. Now Jesus is 12 years old, and he's sitting among the scholars, and he's both hearing and teaching them at 12 years old in the temple. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto his son, Why hast thou dealt with us like this? Behold thy father, and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake. Notice she's um, teaching from the King James here. Take unto him them. And he went down unto them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept. Why do I feel like the reason why she picked the KJV is because she's looking for a particular word that if she were to use a different translation, it wouldn't be there? Uh, just something itching here. All these things in her heart. Verse 52 is our key verse. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus increased. In wisdom, stature, and favor with God and with man. Who did? Jesus did. So who's this about? Jesus. I don't see a command here, by the way. Uh, let's take a look. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor. By the way, favor is there in the ESV. So she, yeah, my suspicions uh, didn't pan out here. Apparently, you know, you know favor's there in the uh, in the ESV, basically, um, it, it's the, uh, the the Greek word charis, which basically means you also get grace or favor or gratitude from it. But uh, that's the the uh, that's the Greek word itself. But um, again, it doesn't say. Therefore, in order for you to uh, experience God's destiny for your life, you have to have favor too. Yeah, it's, it doesn't actually say that. Verse 52 is our, our real key verse. The Darby's translation says, Jesus advanced in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The word advanced means to accelerate with progress or growth. I just decree that there's an acceleration coming to you. Um, how can you do that? Okay, so you, you read the passage in the Darby translation. The Darby translation says that Jesus ex- advanced in favor and stuff like that. And so you just just you know snapped your finger and you've decreed and declared you know that uh, favor is you know it, I'm going to have an advance in my life. That's complete nonsense. Let me back this up. L- listen again. Stature and favor with God and with man. Verse 52 is our, our real key verse. The Darby's translation says, Jesus advanced in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The word advanced means to accelerate with progress or growth. 
I just decreed that there's an acceleration coming to you. Yeah, and I just decreed that you're a heretic and don't know what you're talking about. It means to move forward, to raise to a higher rank, a socioeconomic shift, to bring forward, to make... Um, yeah, again, let's see if this makes sense. Again, a word means what it means in context. So, you know, you can't pour every single meaning of a word into a word. It depends on what how it's being used in context. So advanced, okay, it means to accelerate the progress or growth, to move forward, to raise to a higher rank, to bring forward in time, to increase, to give provision, you know, things like that, okay, and, and, and to raise to a higher rank of socioeconomic shift. Well, that doesn't make sense in the context of uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Let's just plug it in and see if it works. And Jesus advanced in wisdom, and that means that he went to a higher socioeconomic status in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Nope, that's not what that means. It doesn't work in that context. This is just pouring in every definition and saying that they all apply whenever the word shows up. That's far from it. Earlier, to increase, to give provision, it is the hastening of the process to bring about a desired end. God is going to quicken something in your life. The yeah, yeah, so th she's snapping her fingers there. So God's going to quicken something in my life. How do you figure? This passage is about Jesus, not about me. So why would you know God want to you know quicken something in my life just because you snapped your finger? Are you like one of those witches? You know from you know. Uh, bewitched, you know, where they would twinkle their nose and, and, and snap their fingers and magic would happen be just because, you know, you said it, you know? Favor of God is going to flow that puts you in the right place at the right time to meet the right person. One God moment in your life can shift everything. Yeah. One yeah, God. There we go again. She, she, one God you know, moment. Well, this is clearly not a God moment because you don't know how to handle God's word. Moment where God steps in whatever you're dealing with right now can cease. Whatever. Yeah, I'm dealing with a heretic. Yeah, so would you please cease? Delaying and holding back your destiny can be overturned. When it says he advanced in wisdom, stature, and favor, favor is not merely an experience. Mm. People say favor is not fair, but that's not true. Favor is because there's a pathway to favor. Uh huh. And what passage says this? In the Word of God, there's a very clearly laid out way that we obtain favor from God. Okay, show it to me. So it's not just merely an experience, but it's a divine current that takes you from your present situation to the seasoned destiny that God. Right. So favor is the divine current that takes you from your present season to your future destiny. Uh, what verse says that again in context? God has for your future. So favor is necessary to take me from where I am to where I'm going. Yeah, that's great that you uh, make that claim, but you haven't substantiated that from a clear passage. Favor is necessary to take me from my bondage to my freedom. Okay, and again, passage, please. Favor is necessary to take me from lack to increase. Favor is necessary to open up doors that no man can shut. So favor is undeserved access. It's, it's God's grace. It's his mercy. But there is a pathway. There's a very clearly laid out in the word of God. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins, right? Because otherwise we're under the wrath of God, right? How you obtain the favor of God. It will put you in the right place. You see, relationships are the currency to the kingdom. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Again, you're making these assertions here. I don't see a Bible open. And if you're going to ever fulfill what God has for you, mm-hmm. then you have to strategically be aligned with right people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you, I'm sure. I'm sure that won't cost me anything. You have to geographically be aligned at the right place. Oh, so I've got to be at the right geological, sorry, geographical place. Uh-huh. Great. Now I need a map. You have to have the favor of God flowing in your life. Uh-huh. Right. Flowing. Yeah. That what would not be open to you will be open, not because your education, not because your good looks, your charisma, but because God has favored you. So pa- yeah, that's great that you say that again. What passage says this? Pastor Paul, teach me on favor. Favor in the Greek and Hebrew means to delight in, to satisfy a debt. It means to bend. Here we go again, pouring every single definition into a single word. Or to stoop in kindness, to grant, to have mercy on. It means graciousness, liberality, friendly regard of approval. It means a privilege or concession. Yeah, now show me it in context so we can look in context which word is being used and what the right definition is for in that context. And to be partial to. So we already know that Jesus is the patterned son. And since we're going from Luke chapter 2. He's the patterned son? I thought he's the only begotten son. Oh yeah, you don't believe that. Let's use him as the example to show us the favor of God. Oh, I see. So we're just, oh, because he he's just the patterned son. He's going to show us the favor of God. So you just got to follow his pattern. See, because he advanced in favor. So do, that means you do too, if you want to achieve your destiny. He is our role model for us to follow. Our text declares that Jesus advanced or increased in wisdom, stature, and favor. The word increased is important because it means to cut or drive one ways forward. Now you're now you're you're engaging in a duplicitous thing here because the word in that you're using as increase in the Darby translation is advanced. It's you're now this is this is like palming off the bottom of the deck. In the Greek, it's the same word. Again, it's charis. Increase in wisdom and stature and favor is an imperfect active. It means he kept cutting his way forward as through a forest or a jungle as pioneers did. So it's not as if he just... Huh? Um, where did you take Greek? Just went and he was there. Whatever was in his way, he kept cutting his way forward. As through a jungle. You see, we often think... You, you don't know the biblical languages, lady. ...think that God just uh, wiggles his nose or snaps his finger and takes us, but... Yeah, like you, because you that's what you've been doing. You've been wiggling your nose and snapping your finger. This video, weird, huh? There's resistance against your destiny. There's resistance... Oh, yeah, yeah. The devil doesn't want me to get to my destiny. No way. So he's going to resist it. Again, what passage says this again? Resistance against what God has for your future. That's why Mark chapter 4 says, When the word is sown in you, immediately Satan comes for the word's sake. What he wants is for you to forfeit. Uh, no, no. When the word is sown, what happens when the word is sown? People are brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Mark 4 and the parable of the sower is not about you achieving your destiny. It's about repentant faith in Christ and, the, and then bearing fruit 
by multiplying your faith by sharing it with other people. That's what it's talking about there. What God has promised you. That's why Philippians says, forgetting those things which are behind you, you press toward the... Now we're in Philippians. Good night. I'm getting whiplash from all this jumping around, uh, you know, between half verses and, you know, and, and focusing in on words and pouring every meaning into them. This is the anatomy of how false doctrine is taught, by the way, folks. This isn't based on sound biblical hermeneutics or any clear passages in context. Uh, Paula White, she worked very hard for her money. It takes a lot of time to weave together a false theology like this, a lot of creativity and a completely seared conscience to be able to deliver it on camera without blushing. Mark of the prize of the high calling, which is in Christ Jesus. The word press means to resist that which would resist you. So Jesus kept cutting forward as though cutting through a jungle. He had to go through some things. He had to have some impediments removed. He had to have a fortified faith that says, I know my purpose. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. It means at each stage of his development, he was perfect for that stage. And the word perfect means to be complete. So you can look over your life. And and oftentimes people will say, well, you did this and this and this and that. And, And I did. You did. We all did. But here's what you have to understand. At least for my life, I did the best I could at each stage with the knowledge that I had. And that's going to be good enough? (laughs) You need to be forgiven even for your best good works. So if I am increasing, it means I'm going from glory to glory to glory. Notice this is all works-based and law-based, not based upon the biblical gospel. Be better a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now than I am right now. So at each stage of my life, I had the um, perfect development for that stage. Oh yeah, perfect development for that stage. See, she wasn't perfect, but she was she had the perfect development. Right. See, this is a different gospel altogether, folks, and a different theology. This isn't biblical theology at all. And therefore, that's why you need to give yourself permission to change. Oh yeah, I got to give my What Bible verse says I need to give myself permission to ta- change? Yeah, I can't think of any. To say, all right, I did that then. But that's not who I am now. God's favor in my life has allowed me to grow. God's favor in my life has allowed me to move forward, to advance, to increase. His favor was in proportion to him advancing in wisdom and stature. So let's break that down and then we'll tell you how do you get favor from the Lord. Yeah, no, we're going to stop right there because that's as far as we need to go in order to determine whether or not you are telling us the truth of what God's Word says. And sadly, we must report that uh, you are a false teacher. You are a wolf in sheep's clothing or a wolf with a a really good uh, plastic surgeon. But either way, um, that's not the sound of our shepherd, Jesus Christ, and that's not what the Bible teaches. You are teaching false doctrine. You are a heretic, and you shouldn't even be teaching. But, of course, you know, you got to work hard for your money because I'm sure that's the important thing to you, right? 
All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break, we come back. A bad sermon with a false theology and misunderstanding of what the church is and what it's doing. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. Not limited to just games, mind you. Oh no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it.
Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. We're going to take the last train to Clarksville and head down to Clarksville, Tennessee for our sermon review today. You see what I did there? That was a little monkey's humor. Maybe I should keep my day job. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's um, sermon comes to us via onechurch.tv from Clarksville, Tennessee. We're going to be, um, well, listening to a sermon by their head pastor, or lead pastor, Chris Edmondson, and he's preaching on his sermon series entitled Movement Church is for Everyone and this just suffers from bad really bad definitions okay if we're going to have if we're going to define who the church is what the church is to be busy about doing and who pastors exist for well that requires us to open up our bibles and carefully exegete what God's word says if you don't do that, you're going to mess everything up. And unfortunately, this sermon, well, pretty much messes everything up. So, and the reason I play this is because this is the standard seeker-driven drivel and party line about uh, church isn't for believers, it's for unbelievers and all that kind of nonsense. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further uh, any further ado, here's Chris Edmondson from OneChurch.tv and his sermon entitled, Movement, Church is for Everyone. Here we go. Good morning. Y'all doing good? Today, I'm really, really excited talking about it because we are talking about the church. And we're talking about what the church is all about, what it should be all about. And we're primarily doing it from one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's the book of Acts we're going to be looking at today. And why I'm so stoked about this is because... One of the things we're talking about in this entire series is why we do what we do. What is our vision? What is our strategy? Why do we do certain things certain ways? And why do we do this this way? And I'm really hoping that you guys, when you're interacting uh, over the messages over the next month, that you would text me questions about our church, about uh, maybe ask some questions about, hey, why do you do this? And why do you, don't you do this? And things of that nature. And I would love to be able to answer them because we're going to be in this series entitled Movement where we're looking at the church. Now, here's the thing about this. When we started One Church five years ago, here's what we knew about Clarksville. That Clarksville didn't need another church. You know what I'm saying? In fact, some of you, you drove by Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches, Assembly of God churches, Nazarene churches. Some of you drove by Baptist churches and Baptist churches and Baptist churches, right? Because um, there's a lot of Baptists in here in the South. And, um, and, and I, you drove across a lot of different church buildings and church properties to a school. What is that all about? I mean, we knew when we launched this five and a half years ago that Clarksville really did need another church. But here's what we really wanted to do. We didn't just want to create a church where church people like to attend. 
We wanted to create, and this is our vision. We wanted to create. Okay, now we got to stop there for a second. Okay, we didn't want to create a church where church people want to attend. Okay, let's let's tease out a few things here. Okay, number one, who, who is the church? Now, and let, let's put it in that sense, okay? Because the word church can have several different meanings. We're not going to pour every meaning into the word church here. But in context, the, the word church has a meaning, right? Words mean things and words are important. So when we talk about the word church, it was coming from the Greek word ekklesia, which means an assembly or a congregation. We're not talking about the brick and mortar building, right? We say that the church is the bride of Christ. We don't say that the bride of Christ is a bunch of cathedrals and and buildings. You know, we're talking about the people, okay? So if we're going to talk about what the church is, we must first and foremost get this in our head that the church simply defined is uh, holy believers. These are the lambs of Christ who hear the voice of their good shepherd. So the church is comprised of believers. In fact, if you are not a believer who believes Christ, trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are actually not part of the church. You're just not. And trust me when I tell you, Jesus knows who his sheep are, and there are no pseudo-sheep in his flock. There's Jesus is not going to have the wool pulled over his eyes. He knows who his sheep are. His sheep hear his voice, and you know they, they follow him. They trust him. Okay, so when we talk about the church, in what sense are we talking about here? So how do you come up with a church? And now I'm assuming he's talking about a church service. We're going to do a church service for people for for people who are not, uh, uh, not for church people. That would be for Christians. So let's rework the sentence here. We wanted to create a church service for. So let's rework that sentence. They wanted to create a church service for non-believers. Now, does that make any sense? How do you how do you do a church service for non-believers? Because when the church comes together, this is the assembly, the congregation. When the assembly comes together, okay, they are there to receive from Christ His Word. Uh, his 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 supper um you know th- those are the things that the people who are believers who are part of the assembly the holy christian church i would say catholic small c um they come together for a very express purpose to receive god from god the forgiveness of their sins to receive his word the lord's supper to worship and give him thanksgiving and praise why would an unbeliever want to come to an assembly meeting to do that when they don't believe? 
in God, or at least they say they don't. They don't trust Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They're not repentant. They don't. They haven't repented of their sins and trust him. This doesn't make any sense when you take time to kind of work out the language. But this kind of comes down to, you know, again, um, this, let me read to you uh, a statement uh, made by uh, Martin Luther. He was referencing the Apostles' Creed. Um, this is from his uh, treatise of uh, 1539, written on the councils in the church. Here's what Luther said. He said, the creed clearly indicates, this would be the Apostles' Creed, um, uh, indicates what the church is. Namely, it is the communion of saints. That is, a crowd or assembly of people who are Christians. A people with a special call, and therefore not just uh, an, an assembly, but a holy Catholic Christian, that is a holy Catholic Christian assembly or church. So he who does not believe and is not holy and righteous does not belong to the holy Christian church. The church is not wood and stone, um, but the company of believing people who surely have Christ in their midst. That's, you know, this is Luther's statement from uh, on the councils in the church, you know, his understanding of what scripture says. And I think Luther's right here. That the uh, the church is not wood and stone, but it is the company of believing people. That means that they are holy and Christian. So why would you put together a, quote, church service for people who are unholy, for people who are impenitent, for people who are not believers, who do not trust in Christ, who are his enemies? How can you do such a thing? This doesn't make any sense. A church where unchurched and de-churched people love to attend. Now, let me explain that just for a little bit, because a lot of times we throw out words and definitions. So you want a church where unbelievers like to attend. Well, then it's not an assembly. Uh, it is not the holy assembly. We really don't really define them unchurched and de-churched, all right? An unchurched person is somebody who's never been to church before. It's somebody who just got the Bible and they're taking the cellophane off of the Bible, right? They don't know the Bible stories. They don't know the traditions. They've really never been to church. And we wanted to create a church for people who've never been to church before, again, who didn't know the stories, didn't know the songs, didn't know their way around Genesis and maps and all of this stuff, right? But we also wanted to create a church for de-churched people. And let me define that because that's a little bit more harder to define. But once I define it, you're going to go, oh yeah, that was probably me. A de-churched person is somebody who has been to church, but decided I'm never going back. In fact, if I would do a poll in here, um, you could, I mean, you, you'd say, you know what? I bounced out of church at maybe a certain age because of maybe how they treated you or how they treated somebody that you knew, or maybe you bounced out of church because it was boring or, you know, whatever it was. In fact, if you're on you version right now and you're following along, there's actually a poll that you can go on there and you can vote. Hey, why don't you think most people go to church? But here's the thing about this. Our dream. Fi- okay. Now listen, it doesn't matter what an opinion poll says as to why most people don't go to church. Scripture actually explains this very, very simply. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, describing them before they were brought to repentant faith and trust in Jesus Christ, 
for the forgiveness of their sins, says this, And you, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at, the, in, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Simple. You know why people don't come, most people don't come to church? Because most people are not repentant uh, believers who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They're dead and uh, by nature objects of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's the reason why they don't come to church. It's patently false to say, oh, well, we just conducted a survey and the survey says the majority of people we surveyed said the reason they don't come to church is because they don't like hymns or they, they, they hate the music. Nuh-uh-uh. The reason why most people don't go to church is because they hate God. That's the reason they're not there. They, if they were brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and were regenerated, born again, born from above, born of water in the Spirit, as J- Jesus says in uh, John chapter 3, they would be in church. Right? Mm-hmm. We continue. Five years ago was we wanted to start a church for people who have never been to church before, And we want to start a church for people who normally don't go to church. Now, that's kind of odd because once they start coming to church, they're charged, right? It's just kind of, it's kind of weird, right? But that, that was our vision. That was our dream. We wanted to start a church for people when they show up, you know what? They dress like I dress. They listen to the same music I listen to. They watch the same movies I watch. Um, they have the same struggles with their children. They have the same struggles um, with their stepkids or, or divorce or remarriage or whatever it is. We wanted to start a church for people just like you and just like me. And we wanted to create a church for, the, uh, for a group of people that didn't necessarily connect with the church, and we wanted to create that church. We wanted to make that church irresistible. Now, again, why would we create a church for people who don't go to church? Listen to this statistic, and I say this all the time because it's one of those things I have up in my office. Okay, now let me let me give you some more biblical passages that bear this out. I don't know what this guy is talking about, but he's not doing a careful study of what Scripture says. Hebrews chapter twelve, and what I will do is I will start at verse twenty-two. The verse I want is verse twenty-three, but listen to this. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn. Okay? And here's the Greek word ekklesia, to the church or the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, uh, uh, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all and the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So here Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23 makes it clear that the ecclesia, the church, the assembly are those who are enrolled in heaven. They are the ones whose names are written in the book of life. If your name is not written in the book of life, and you're not part of this assembly, you're not part of the church. We continue. I'll give you some more passages along the way. And I dream about this. Listen to this. 88% of people in Clarksville, Montgomery County 
don't go to church. 88%. Just think through that. That nine out of ten houses that you passed on the way here, they're at home. They're not at church. And I think if, if we would go to those nine out of ten people and we would ask them, hey, why don't you go to church? I mean, really, just... The scripture already tells us because they're at war with God, they're dead in trespasses and sins and objects of God's wrath. That's why they don't go to church. Why don't you go to church? Most of them would probably give us this answer. Church? Well, I don't go to church because church is for churched people. I mean, church... No, church is for believers. Again, this is just slippery language if you... Clean up the language. It's clear what he's doing. Let me give you another passage. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. Um, Here's what Paul writes. He says, God the Father put all things under his feet, that's Jesus, and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body. So the ecclesia, the assembly, the church, is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So if according to these words, Christ is the head of the church, of the assembly, and this is his body, then the true church in its proper sense is the sum total of all those who are joined to Christ, just as members of the body are joined to their head. So again, this is real simple. The reason why unbelievers don't show up when the assembly, when the church comes together, the body of Christ, to receive his word, the forgiveness of sins, feast on the uh, body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper, things like that. The reason why they don't do that is because they're not part of his body. They're not repentant believers. That's why they don't go to church. I mean, that's not really not my thing. Church is for church people. And, and, and here's the thing. I don't believe that. And our church doesn't believe that. And let me tell you the reason why is because if church is for church people, then Christianity is for church people, and Jesus came for church people, and there wasn't even a church yet. Okay, this is not a biblical argument. This is just him trying to spin together something that sounds logical. Let me give you another passage. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 through 27. Listen to this. Uh, Ephesians 5, 23 through 27. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the assembly, the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church, the assembly, this would be the believers, submit to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the assembly, the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that would be the assembly, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church, the ecclesia, the assembly, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, I'm going to make a charge here. You're going to hear in the sermon, um, this pastor basically make the claim that the church exists for unbelievers. No, it doesn't. If it if if this passage is correct, and I believe it is, this passage is correct, that God, that Christ sanctifies her, the church, washing her by water with the word, so that he might present her, the church, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, the church exists for Christ.
See what I mean? It doesn't exist for believers or unbelievers. The church exists for Christ because he intends to present her, the ecclesia, to himself in splendor, like a bride. In other words, the church exists for Jesus, not for you, not for me, not for believers, not for unbelievers. The church exists for Jesus. Big difference. So again, here, you know, this we're just looking at the passages as what they say regarding who the church is and who it's for. You know, I'm doing the biblical text. This pastor is just making stuff up. Hang out with me, okay? I mean, I believe that Jesus came to everyone, and he wants everyone to connect with him. But here's the thing. Here's the reality that you and I live in. Of those 9 out of 10 people, and those 9 out of 10 homes, the, I mean the 88%, here's what I know about many of them. They do believe in God. And they do, I, I think they do want to connect with God. Yeah, they believe that God exists. Yeah, this is Romans 1. Yeah, and yeah, they believe that God exists. That doesn't save them. They need to repent of their sins and be forgiven because of the shed blood of Christ that was shed for them. That They might be forgiven. They need to repent and be forgiven. This is what the scriptures say. God, in whatever their definition of God is, but they don't feel like they can come to church to connect with God. And that just drives me nuts. No, no, no. It's not that they don't feel like they can come to church to connect with God. It's that they hate God and they're dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, they won't come to church to connect with God because they're at war with him. That's what Scripture says. They're not a bunch of innocent people who are just looking to connect with God. No, 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 no. They're hostile belligerents who've sided with the devil. The father, Their father is the devil. They hate God. They do not submit to his laws. They cannot. They're dead in trespasses and sins. They are unrighteous, and they therefore they need to be confronted with their sin and called to repentance. That's the reason they don't come to church, because they're not regenerate. They're not born again. Because of they, maybe they had such a bad experience or maybe they went to church and it, it, it seems like they were talking a different language and they didn't really understand it. And we don't want the church to be an impediment to connecting people with God. We be- um, that's ridiculous. There is no salvation outside of the church. The church, the ecclesia, is not an impediment to people coming to, for people to, to come to God. They can't come to God except for to be a part of the church itself. This is absurd. believe that the church is the way to connect people with God, and we want to make that irresistible. Here at One Church, that TV, we're on a mission. We're on a mission from God. Blues Brothers, I'm just saying. We're on a mission, and here's our mission. We want... To make people to take a second look at God and to take a second look at the church. That really is it. I mean, most people in our culture, they've kind of given up on the church and they really don't know what to think about God. But we want to make people take that second look going, really? Is, is, is that what I thought it was? That's what we want. So that's what we're trying to do here. We want people to show up and say, you know what? I don't believe it. I don't understand it. I'm not buy, I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. I, 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 you know, but you know what? I like these people. They're just good people. 
And even though I don't maybe vote the same way they do, or even though I may not believe the same way they believe, I have more in common, and I like hanging out with these group of people more than I like hanging out with my friends on Friday and Saturday nights that we have everything in common. They accept me. And I think I'm going to come back. That is our win. That's it. That's our charge. That's our mission. And I believe it was Jesus' mission. In fact, if you have your Bibles... Uh, Jesus gave the church a singular mission. Okay, now, this is, comes to an important thing. Okay, in the Nicene Creed, the church has confessed that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, what does the word Catholic there mean? It doesn't mean Roman Catholicism. It means Catholic is the word for universal. In other words, we believe in one holy. That means we are sanctified and made holy by the shed blood of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Catholic, universal. Every single church has the exact same mission, period. And they have the exact same doctrine that they are to preach. If you believe in the Catholic Church, then you don't believe that individual congregations have individual customized missions or visions or things like that. Instead, every single church, which is part of the Church Catholic, the Church Universal, has the same marching orders. And those marching orders are found in Matthew chapter 28 and Luke 24, respectively, which says this, Um, Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Christ's mission for the church universal, the church Catholic, is to make disciples, baptizing, teaching all that he has commanded. And it's cross-reference, if you would, is uh, found in Luke chapter 24, uh, starting at verse 45. It says, And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, making disciples comes parallel with the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. People are not part of the holy assembly, the holy Catholic, small c, church, unless they're brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Well, what what Chris Edmondson is doing here is just he's showing that he doesn't know how to handle God's word and he hasn't really taken the time to look at what scripture says regarding these things. Turn to the book of Acts. Acts is kind of almost three fourths away in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and thank you. All right, one more time. We're going to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. There you go. Go. Acts is all about action. All right, And what happens, it starts at the very beginning, and Jesus, he is getting ready to say his last words, and he's getting ready to go up into heaven. And this is Jesus' last words. All right? I love this. In fact, this verse really does give us a, uh, a, a pattern of what the entire book of Acts is going to unfold in this way. Listen to how Jesus says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my 
What is a witness? Well, a witness is telling people about me everywhere. That's what a witness is. A witness is telling people about Jesus everywhere. And then he describes the everywhere. In Jerusalem, now stop right there. Jerusalem primarily made up of Jews. All right? That's the kind of the Jewish capital city. All right? So Jerusalem, all Jews. And then he says, Jesus says, okay, once you're in Jerusalem, you're going to go to Judea. By the way, Judea, all Jews. All right, cool. And they're like, okay, Jerusalem, got it. Jews, good. Because all the people, all these disciples, they were Jewish. So we're going to Archon, cool. Judea, all Jews, good to go, good to go. Samaria, they're kind of half Jewish. They're kind of kind of Jewish, okay? So they're kind of kind of Jewish. So, okay, we'll do there. Good, kind of good. And then to the ends of the earth. Time out. Whoa. The ends of the earth isn't Jewish. In fact, the ends of the earth is you and me. The ends of the earth is, is, is broader than just the Jewish, these, the, the Jews. It includes Jews and non-Jews. The Bible calls them Gentiles. And here's the thing. That's the pattern that Jesus gave them. And then Jesus went up to heaven. And did they follow it? The answer is no. What they would do is they went to Jerusalem and they got comfortable. And they're like, you know what? We're just hanging out with our Jew friends, right? Hanging out. And then God would allow persecution. And in Acts chapter 8, they scattered and then went to Judea and Samaria. And they stayed there. And they got comfortable. And they didn't want to go anywhere. And then God allowed persecution to come. And then ultimately, (laughs) kicking and screaming, they went to the ends of the earth. And today, in Acts chapter 10, we're going to see that... Boy, that's a very bad gloss of the story there. And there's something very slippery that he's doing. He's equating Jews with how we view church people. That is duplicitous, and it is not even remotely closely accurate at all ends of the earth illustrated. So if you got your Bibles, Acts chapter 10, we're going to be there in just a sec. But let me just say this as you're turning there. All right. At first, all the people who were coming to Jesus and coming, becoming Christians were Jewish. The first Christians were Jewish. They knew the Old Testament. They already had half the Bible. They knew all of the stories. They knew about David and Goliath. They knew about Daniel. They knew about Gideon. They knew about Samson and they, they taught it on felt boards. They knew all of the stories. They knew all of the customs. They knew the language. They were religious insiders. They even had all the customs and they had meeting places. They would go to synagogues where Judaism happened and they would preach the gospel there. And it just happened to work out, but all these new Christians were Jewish. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached a sermon and 3,000 Jews came to know Jesus Christ, and they got baptized. And it's like, whoo, it's awesome. And the kind of the assumption in the mega church now happening in Jerusalem is that to become a Christian, you must first become a Jew. In order to become a Christian, you have to become Jewish. No, actually, that is not the assumption of the early Christians. That was the false teaching of the Judaizers, and it was vehemently opposed by men like the Apostle Paul and was ultimately put down at the first council of Jerusalem, which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. No, the early Christians, even you know, right at the day of Pentecost, did not teach and believe that you had to become a Jew first in order to become a Christian. That is, what you're doing there is mixing 
portions of Scripture together that don't go together and twisting the history. So now there's this conflict. It's the same conflict that you and I and many churches are having today across America, and it's this. No, it's not. It really is not even close to the same thing. I'll let him finish his thought, but this is not what the problem is. Will we reach people or will we keep people? Sorry, it's not an either or. It is not an either or. Will we reach people or will we keep people? Because of this Jewish mindset, they said, you know what? Let's just keep all the religious insiders happy because we already have. No, they did not. We have our own language. We already know the customs. We already know the stories. And let's just keep it safe. And they thought it was exclusively for them that the gospel, that the Bible, that the church was exclusively for churched people. No, again, equating Judaism and the, the, the view of the Christian Jews of the first portion of the church, the first part of church history, as basically wanting to keep it among church persons is duplicitous. This point we're talking about nationality and religion, okay? Very different than what we would say, oh, we want to do church for church people. This Again, this is flat-out historical twisting and propaganda. The church were for the Jews, much like this commercial parody points out. Y'all watch this. Okay, now, this commercial parody, we've played this before here at Fighting for the Faith years ago. Uh, it's interesting how he's using it, though. Because as you're listening to this, ask yourself, do you, does, is, do you know anybody at your church who really thinks that this is what church is about? Listen in. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guys. Say no more. (laughs) If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we'd sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. How about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Me Church, where it's all about you. You know, we can laugh about that, but that is exactly what the mindset was in Peter and all the other Jews in that day. Is they thought, you know what, the church exists. No, that was not even close to their view of church. That is just absolutely diabolical. Let's continue. For me, and here's the thing that we're going to learn today, that the church is more than just me. In fact, the church is more than just us. That the gospel was never intended to just to be for a select group of people. That the good news was meant to be the more than just Jews and more than just Christians or more than just church people. It's meant more than just Christians. That's ridiculous. The Christians are the church. Unbelievers are not part of the church. This is absurd. Meant for 
all people. And here's the point we're going to be getting at and looking at today, that if you want to grow in Christ, then you must go out of your comfort zone. I mean, your growing up is tied to your going out. This is a spiritual principle, but we see this all the time in nature. When water stops moving, it becomes what? Stagnant. And what grows in stagnant water during the summertime? Blood-sucking mosquitoes. That, that, is, that is the truth. And here's the thing about this. I, I end up, uh, I, I, this is a quote from Bill Willits. I end up going, um, going to a conference about a month and a half ago, and he says this, the most toxic people in the church are the people who are least engaged in telling other people about Jesus because they think it's all about me. And that is what we're going to see with Peter. Peter, in, in, in kind of his group and his band, they got comfortable. And I never see in the Bible that God calls us to comfort. Never. I see him calling us out of our comfort zones. Because if we want to grow, then we must go. And if we, may, and if we say no when God says go, we're going to stop growing. That's huge. So... We're going to see Acts chapter 10, verse 1, that God is interested in everyone, even people who don't have a relationship with him, even people who don't know Jesus. This is what we're going to look at. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I believe Christ died for the sins of the world and that he has called us to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations. But it's not a dichotomy between reaching people and keeping people. If you're a Christian, we come to church. We come to the building. We are the church. We come to the church because we're part of the assembly to, well, to worship, to receive from God forgiveness, mercy, his word, his supper, you know, things like that, right? And the reason why unbelievers don't show up is because they're at war with God. This is simple. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer. How many of y'all are in the army or know somebody in the army? All right, that's everybody, right? A Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. Now, Cornelius, he is a captain, all right? He's a centurion, and that means he, is, he has 100 soldiers underneath him. This guy lived in a beautiful place 45 miles north of Jerusalem called Caesarea. Now, here's a picture of Caesarea. It's a coastal city right on the Mediterranean Sea, and it's gorgeous. All right? So this guy, Cornelius, who's not a Jew, he's a Gentile, and even worse than that, he is part of the army that's occupying this land. He is there. By the way, give, give you a heads up. He was a Roman centurion. The people who killed Jesus, who literally drove the nails in his hands, those were Roman centurions. So these are the same groups of people that killed Jesus. All right? So it says he was captain of the Italian regiment, verse 2. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. Now that's an important phrase. God-fearer. Okay? That's a specific title. That means he was in the process of converting to Judaism and is not yet circumcised. That's who the God-fearers are. When you know that little factoid, this blows up his false use of this uh, concept here. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. He prayed. You see that? He prayed regularly. Look at verse 3. 
says this. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel coming towards him. Now, let's just stop about this. Cornelius is praying to God. Let me just say this. When you pray regularly to God, irregular things will happen in a regular way. And what's so cool about this, God hears sincere prayers. Now, using his uh, his definitions of churched and unchurched, is Cornelius churched or unchurched? He's churched. Even the prayers of people who aren't yet connected to him. You see, Cornelius saw an angel. Let me tell you guys, I have a master in theology. I've never seen an angel, ever. All right? But here, Cornelius, who's not yet connected with God, even though he, he's trying to worship God in his own way, he doesn't know anything about Jesus, nothing about Jesus. He just, he's, he just believes in God, and that's how most Americans are. Did you know that 95% of all Americans believe in God? That they believe in this higher power? Though it probably isn't the God of the Bible, they believe in some type of God. And that's how this captain was. He knew about God. He was seeking after God. And God's people should have been telling him about Jesus. Um, no, again, the fact that he was a devout man who feared God, that he was one of the God-fearers, shows that he was a regular attender at the synagogue and he, because he was part of the God-fearers, he was not yet circumcised. So he was really, he was being taught the Old Testament scriptures, which means he would have been hearing about the Messiah. You need to do better research before you start launching into a sermon like this. But they weren't growing because they weren't going. Because God's people, the Jewish Christians, because they're not going out, God sends an angel Yet, no, again, you're twisting the story. To this Gentile Roman seeker. One afternoon about 3 o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming towards him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. I'm going to keep on going. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor, look at this, have not gone unnoticed by God. Quick question. Do you think God notices people who aren't yet connected to him? Um, boy, again, um, there, he is praying to and believes in the God of the Old Testament because he attends the synagogue and he is a God-fearer. So, and he's showing through his, basically through his good works, that, he, that faith is already alive in him. He believes in the coming Messiah but he doesn't know that Jesus is the Messiah because he hasn't been taught this yet. Man. Yes. Do you believe God notices and cares for people who aren't yet in church yet? Yes, he does. Yes, he does notice them and he cares for them. And scripture says God demonstrates his love for them in that while they were yet sinners, Christ died for their sins. Do you believe God wants everybody to have a relationship with him? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Everybody already has a relationship with God. If you're an impenitent sinner, you have a bad one. If you are a repentant sinner who trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have a good one, one that is fantastic based upon the fact that you have been reconciled to God by what Christ has done. I mean, God loves, loves this guy, and yet this guy knows nothing about Jesus. But this guy knows a lot about Yahweh. 
because he's in the process of converting to Judaism. We're going to keep on going. Look at verse seven, 5 and then 7 and 8. It says this, Now send some men, talking the angel still talking to Corny, send some men down to Joppa to find a man by the name of who? Simon Peter. And after the angel left, Cornelius sent two of his servants off to Joppa. Now, what, if I was the angel, what I would have expected to do is I would have told, if I was the angel, I'd said, let me tell you about Jesus and show him how to get to heaven. But the angel didn't do that. You want to know why the angel didn't do that? It wasn't the angel's job. Whose job was it? Peter's and everybody else's. It was the first century believers. Let me tell you, God's not going to do something for you if he's calling you to do it yourself. When he says, listen, I want you to do this and you obey me, he's not going to circumvent that obedience process. And here, what we're going to see, we see Cornelius, who's this seeking lost person, and we'll get ready to see Peter, who's this very comfortable found person. He's kind of kicking back. In fact, what the found person doing, Peter? He's thinking about lunch. What some of y'all are thinking about right now. Let's look at it. Verses 9 and 10. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the city, Peter was up on the flat roof to pray. I mean, they used this flat roof, kind of like how we use decks today. It's high and the breeze would come in. So he's up on the roof and he's praying. It was about noon and he was hungry. Not hungry. Don't mispronounce that. It's hungry. All right? And now, notice, it's the centurion that's going to be reaching out to Peter. Not the other way. Peter is doing this very, very pious, let me pray, and he's hungry, right? So interesting. This is what, he's thinking about lunch, verses 9 and 10. Peter went up to the flat roof to pray. It was about noon and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Again, has anybody ever prayed and and as you were praying, you fell asleep? Anyone? Am I the only person in here? If you are like that, Peter's the same way. He's hungry, and he starts praying, and he's like, and he starts dreaming. He falls into a trance, and in this trance, look what happens. But while at lunch, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down. I mean, think about this as like a big, giant tablecloth or picnic blanket. By its four corners, and in this sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill, and eat them. How many of y'all have ever heard of Bear Grylls? All right. I mean, this dude, he's out in nature, and he's like eating everything. He's taking moss and eating it, right? And he's like killing like skunks and somehow eating those and yet not getting stinky. I don't know how he does it. I'm thinking, dude... Even though I know you can eat that and kill that, should you? I mean, really? Um, That's kind of how the Jewish mind works. How many of y'all have ever heard the word kosher? All right, most of us, right? You see, the, the Jews had a very strict dietary law that if it wasn't kosher, that means if it wasn't clean, they wouldn't eat it. And there was a list of all kinds of different animals pigs and shrimp and all the stuff that they wouldn't eat. And they took great pride in not eating that. But yet, in this big tablecloth, God is showing him, listen, in all the pig, I mean, all the stuff, I want you to get up, kill, and eat. In other words, the Lord is saying, it's time to change your mind. It's time to change all of that. It's time for something new, Pete. There's a new way of approaching your faith, and there's a new way of approaching other people. Because this goes way beyond just ham sandwiches. 
Look at this. Verse 16, the same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was pulled up again to heaven. And I'm thinking, really? It took him three times? I mean, think about it. Jesus denied, uh, Peter denied Jesus how many times? I mean, this dude has like three on the brain. I don't know what it is. I don't know if he's just arguing with God and it takes him, God, three times to go in. You know, whatever. I don't know what it is. But he gets in there, and this vision really has very little to do with food and everything to do with people. Because here's the gig. In the Jewish mind, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, pretty much us, we were inferior. In fact, they would call Gentiles dogs. They were considered unclean, non-kosher. In fact, Jews wouldn't even walk on the same sidewalk with a Gentile because they would think, you know what, I'm going to catch their uncleanliness. They didn't associate with Gentiles. They even, didn't even eat with Gentiles. Peter had refused to go outside to people even though Jesus said, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. Peter's mindset was that Christianity was exclusively for the Jews. Religion was for religious people. Church is for church people, and it was all about me, church. No, it again, this is a false application of what's going on in this text. This wasn't them saying, oh, church is only for church people. That is a flat-out lie. In his mindset. So Peter is puzzled. He's scratching his head, and look at what it says in verse 17. Peter was very perplexed. What could this vision mean? Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. And he's on the top of, the, of this house, and he hears this. He looks down, and he sees these Roman guards, these centurions. Now think about it. These are the same people that killed Jesus. And open up. What is, what's going through Peter's mind right now? This is it. I, I, I might as well. I didn't get to get my last supper. I'm still hungry. I'm getting ready to die. But look at this. Look at what God says to Peter. Get up. Go downstairs. And what is that next word? Go. Everybody say go. That was that was awful. Let's say it one more time. Go one more time. Go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. I mean, do you see God's work in here? God is connecting the dots. Got Cornelius over here who really wants to follow God but knows nothing about Jesus. Peter who knows all about Jesus, but he's just, he's just too comfortable. He's wanting to go to old Charlie's. No, that's not it at all. Um, he was very busy evangelizing. Right, and God. I mean, did did you not read the other chapters leading up to chapter ten? Uh, Peter was far from sitting on his laurels. It's going, do, 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 and he's connecting the two towards them. I mean, Peter, when he gets to the house, when he gets to this house, he sees all of these people in Cornelius's house. He see, and nobody's Jewish. Everybody is Gentile. I mean, none of these people are Jewish. None of them are religious. None of them know the Bible. None of them know the Bible stories. Uh, again, did you read the text? Do you even understand what the phrase God-fearer means? <clears throat> let, me, let me read a little bit more here um, about Cornelius from Acts chapter 10. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out and asked where Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit to him uh, said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. 
Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man. Again, the God-fearer is, you know, one who is somebody who's a Gentile converting to Judaism, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. Why would that be? Because he believes in the, the God of the Old Testament, right? He was, uh, okay, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you and to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. Um, Do you think the whole Jewish nation would have been speaking well of Cornelius if Cornelius was not somebody who was a God-fearer? No, they wouldn't have. They would have viewed him as just one of the goyim. None of them have went to the synagogues for the religious gatherings. I mean, none of them are there. And it finally clicks in Peter's mind what the vision's all about. Look at verse 28. Peter told them, you know, it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. Peter said, you know what? This is going really against what I've been taught, what I've been told. But look at this. But... God, I like that. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. There it is. Peter finally got it. He learned the vision. That You know what? And what's so amazing, he had to go before he started growing in his knowledge of what God really wanted to do. And some of you, that's how it's going to be. God's going to tell you, I want you to go with these. And you're like, I don't know. I don't know enough. I don't know all the stuff. And you know what? When you start going, you will start growing. It's a fact. And that's what we see happen here. Look at verse 34. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly. You see, he didn't see clearly two days ago. He's like, he's perplexed going, man. Weird. He's hopscotching now. He's skipping verses. And I'm really hungry. But I see very clearly that God doesn't show favoritism, but accepts accepts men and women from every nation. Everybody say every nation. Every nation who fear him and do what is right. You see, up to this point, when Peter thought about the we, the people of the church, he only thought about me, the people who are like me. No, that's not exactly true. Who have my values, who dress like me who speak like I do, who are religious, people who go to church, people who vote like I do, people who have my morals, who watch my movies, who watch my television. Uh, Again, did you read the passage? So Peter opened his mouth saying, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. Hello? You know, we're not dealing with somebody who was literally engaged in rank paganism. We're talking about somebody who was on his way into Judaism. Let me continue reading the story so that we can get the context, because at this point, Chris is um, he's hopscotching. He's selecting which passages he wants to read and which don't fit the narrative that he's trying to, to tease out here, uh, which is not really the narrative of this text. Let's Let's read. In fact, we're going to go a little bit farther than uh, chapter 11 so that we can get the interpretation of this event because that's actually dealt with straight up in the next chapter. 
So they said, Cornelius, this verse 22, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you and to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Okay, this is, this is national stuff going on here. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying. Why was he praying? Because he's a convert into Judaism. He's a God-fearer. I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who was called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have command, been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace, through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God has raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of all the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives Forgiveness of sins through his name. Okay, great gospel presentation. So this guy now hears the forgiveness of sins in Christ, right? While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus uh, Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Chapter 11. Let's get a little bit more what's going on here. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Now, notice it says 
those in the circumcision party. These are the guys who are going to be full-blown Judaizers before too long, right? Okay, and they're criticizing Peter. But Peter began to and explained to them in uh, explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in trance. I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel standing in the house, and said, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved." you and your entire household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they all glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Notice here in this last sentence, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That it wasn't them that they saw as keeping the Gentiles out, but it was God who was granting them repentance that they can become part of the assembly as well. The assembly of those who are holy, who are sanctified, who are washed in the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. All of this is right in here. And the text doesn't say, and oh, well, they... You know, Peter, you know, because he was he'd just gotten comfortable and he just wanted to do church for church people. Not at all. It was God who intervened and they saw it as God granting repentance that leads to life, even to Gentiles, so that Christianity was no longer a Jewish phenomena, but was a phenomena for all nations of all people everywhere to hear the good news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what's going on here. But at this point, uh, Chris uh, from OneChurch.tv is twisting this passage in order to, in a way, engage in propaganda to basically justify the seeker-driven model and basically claim that if you, if your church is making disciples and going and going with in-depth Bible teaching and stuff like that, well, then they're just like those people, those Jews who are keeping Gentiles out. No, that's not what's going on in this passage. And to make that passage about this is to twist it and mangle it in a way that, well, um, God warns about this type of Bible twisting in his word. All of that stuff. But what God is showing Peter is that you... Becoming a weed doesn't make it all about me. And that's our big idea today. Becoming a weed doesn't make this about me. 
Because church isn't about keeping people. It's about reaching people. Church isn't about keeping people. That is patently false. It's about both. It is not an either or. We want people to remain in the faith and in the church until they die. Because as Jesus said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, it's about reaching people. One of the things that we regularly see here at One Church is new faces. In fact, some of you should have gotten a letter in the mail this week that we have seen over 66 new families show up here at One Church in the past three months. That's exciting. That is so cool. We're always seeing new faces. And I love seeing new faces. Because, again, we see a lot of people in our community who need Jesus. Even though I love that part of it, let me tell you the part I don't like about our church. is seeing really great faces that you've grown to know and love when they leave. And we see that a lot, too. Man, we've already had one couple in our community group right now who's, who has left over in the past six months. They've moved to South Carolina. We've got another one who's getting ready to PCS. Um, I've got, I got great friends in this church who they've been with us for four and a half, five years, and Uncle Sam's getting ready to move them on. I mean, just on this stage alone, we've seen a lot of new faces. And, you know, I, I love the new faces, but the old faces, I'm like, I don't want you to go because i got relationships with them. And I love them. They're my best friends in the world. But the thing I have to remind myself that this isn't about me. And it isn't even about we. It's about me, we, and they. Because I believe that God longs to have a relationship with everyone. It's about the 12% here in Clarksville who go to church. And who love singing and love coming and love know the people who know the stories and know the traditions. We want those people. But we also want the 88% of the other people who don't know the stories and don't know what to say and sometimes drop the wrong words at the wrong times and it makes people look, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? All right. Um, uh, and, and, and who don't know the traditions and don't know the customs. We want to get all of them together and say, let's talk about God. Let's talk about Jesus Christ. I mean, hear me. What we do here on Sunday mornings, I mean, we don't talk about some words. I mean, we talk about the meanings of them, but we don't throw the words out. I mean, sanctification, ecclesiology, soteriology, propitiation, justification. I mean, all of these, some of you are like, what did you call me? I know. You see, I know the meanings of every one of those words. I can read and speak Hebrew and Greek. Now, I'm telling you that I can, I can come in here and I can go agape and eros and phileo. I can do all that. And some of you would leave going, I have no idea what he said, but he's really smart. Let me tell you, my job isn't to impress you. Yeah, why is it that quoting the Hebrew or the Greek is automatically something that would just turn somebody off. Is it not possible to show somebody the deeper meaning of a passage by appealing to the Greek and the Hebrew and as their servant showing them what the scripture says in the original languages? Just because somebody quotes the Hebrew and the Greek doesn't make them pretentious. If 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 you want to be impressed by a preacher... You know what? You're probably going to need to go to another church. 
Because let me tell you what my job is. It isn't to make it deep for you so that you go, I have no idea what he said. Uh-huh. So it's not your job to make it deep for them. Hmm. Why is it that making something deep all of a sudden makes it so that it goes over their head? Do you not think that people are capable of understanding what the Bible says in depth? But I'll be back. My job is to put the cookies on the bottom shelf and to get you reading the Bible when you're not in this building. That's my job. In fact, again, it's not an either or. Uh, the Wheaton professor, Dr. Gilbert Bazilke, and he said it like this. The way you talk about the Bible on Sunday mornings will determine their interest in the Bible during the week. And that's huge because one of the things that we want to do is we want to get everybody reading the Bible because we believe you start reading the Bible, your relationship with God will grow huge. My job as a communicator here at One Church, everybody's job who's on this stage is we've got to make the Bible accessible to everyone. And and we want to present the scriptures. Why is making the Bible accessible to everyone contrary to doing it in depth? That doesn't make any sense in a helpful way. And when we do that, we've removed an obstacle. Back to Acts chapter 10, last verse we're looking at. Peter opens his mouth and he tells the unchurched, irreligious people at Cornelius' house, not about a denomination, not about a label, not about traditions or preferences. This is how we've always done it. He talks to them about, let's look. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to witness that, There it is. Who are we supposed to be talking about? Jesus. Who are we supposed to be going, hey, this is what this is all about. This is what you need. It's Jesus. He ordered us to preach everywhere. Peter finally got it. Oh, yeah. Acts 1.8. Should have been doing that. Dang. All right. Witness that Jesus is ordained. He's chosen of God to be the judge of all the living and the dead. That's right, Pete, Jew and Gentile, unchurched, dechurched, church. There's the principle at work. Now, as we close, what does this have to do with you and I today? Great story, but really, practically, what's the point? And here's the point. I tell you that five years ago when we started this church, We believe the story because we believe that the church and the gospel and the good news is for everyone, not just the people who know it all and who know the story. Again, um, this would be for all nations. Okay, yeah. um, I also believe that the gospel is for everyone, that Christ died for the sins of the world, that we're to go and make disciples of all nations stories, but for everyone. This this message isn't just reserved for church people. We believe that this message is one for unchurched people. Um, I don't know any Christian, not one, who believes that that the message of the gospel is only for, quote, church people. That's ridiculous. Have you heard of evangelism? Have you heard of missionaries? Yeah, um, the, the evangelism and mission work has been a vital part of the church for like, you know, 2,000 years. In fact, through my entire lifetime, I've never attended a church where the pastor or the people were against evangelism and missions. 
People who used to go to church and saying, I don't think I'm going to go back. People who've always been at church. And we ask questions like this. How can we make Wonderland, our preschool environment, fun? How can we make it safe? Now, let me tell you, we want to make Wonderland safe, not so that safe Christians can bring their safe children and have a safe time. All right? That's a reason, but it's not just the reason. Let me tell you the reason why we want to make it fun and safe. Because one day, somebody that you know and love is going to show up here at this church, and they're going to be looking for a reason never to come back. And they're going to show up with their baby in their arms, their precious baby, and they're going to really feel a lot of hesitation handing their baby over to somebody they don't even know. But there's going to be somebody back in our Wonderland environments who said, you know what? We, I, I understand what you're feeling right now, and you do whatever you do. We're here for you. We want to let you know this is the best, safe, fun environment for your children. And in this environment, they're going to learn that God loves them, God made them, and that Jesus wants to be their friend forever. We want our children's environments to be second to none. We want it to be like Disney World every Sunday. We want parents to come in hating this church, but they're going to come back next week because their mom, their kids are going to be waking up, mama, 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 mama. Anybody ever? You're like, please change my name. You know, if you'd preach the gospel and uh, d- confront them with their sin and unbelief, and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, um, then God would convert them, give them a new heart, they'd be born again, and you wouldn't be able to keep them away from church. Just saying. All right? Daddy, Daddy, where are we going to church today? We're going to go back to that other church? Come in. The church we just went to last week, can we go back? Ha, 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 ha. I want kids waking up their parents who don't really care nothing about God to say, you know what? Well, I guess we're going back because our kids loved it. Let me tell you, the reason why we create environments for our teenagers. So you don't want them to love coming to church because they love Jesus, because Scripture says we love him because he first loved us? Yeah, okay. On Wednesday nights at Relevant Students is we want to create an environment where when our students invite their, uh, their student friends at, at high school or in middle school, that they show up and their friends engage and they like it. And it's like, wow, this is fun. The reason why we spend a lot of money with fun, huh? Um, rather than them finding out, like, how they got here, what's wrong with the world, um, how the solution is found in Jesus, you want them to have fun. When do they get to the part where they're confronted with their sin and unbelief and are called to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? Camps and retreats and all of this stuff is we want to create a place where both kids who've grown up in church and kids who've never been to church can feel like they both can connect with God. The reason why we, why we spend money on coffee isn't so that we can have a bunch of caffeinated Christians who get crazy at worship, Right? However, that might not be a bad thing, right? And let me tell you the reason why we do that is because... By the way, who is he preaching about? Is he preaching about Jesus? Nope. He's preaching about onechurch.tv. We believe there's going to be people showing up who are looking for an excuse to never come back, whose walls are, are high and they got their defenses up and they're like, man, I don't know about this. I don't, I don't know. I'm just, I'm really uncomfortable. And they go and they're, they're giving away coffee and how much do I owe you? It's free. No, seriously. There's always strings attached. No, it's free. 
And we just want you, at that moment, coffee doesn't save them, but they start letting down their guard. And they're going to come and hear where they're going to hear a message that God isn't mad at them, but madly in love with them. It's, it's the... um, can you tell me about the part from like John chapter 3 where it says the one who believes in Christ is saved, but the one who doesn't believe, the wrath of God remains on him. Can you reconcile that statement that you just made with that passage from the tail end of the Gospel of John chapter 3? The reason why we do what we do up here on Sunday mornings. You know, uh, it's so funny. Um, a lot of people have these preconceived notions about what church should be like. You know what I'm saying? And the smells. and Because everybody's kind of been to church when they were, you know, we, you went with your grandmother or whatever. And again, I, I did as well. All right. But when, when somebody's invited to church and you're like, yeah, I'm, I, church isn't for me. No, 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 no. This is not like a church you've experienced before. I remember my wife. Um, uh, there was this lady that she was teaching piano to and she was Buddhist. And my wife said, why don't you come to church with us? And she was like, I don't know. And you ought to come. So she showed up one Sunday and in very broken English after the church service, Kim Founder says, what did you think? And this lady says, well, it wasn't like any church I'd ever went to. It was more like a rock concert. That's what we want. It really is. It's, it's, I'm not saying that we have to have lights and the haze to worship. Of course we don't. I know some of you are like, I wonder how much money that cost. Right? That's not the whole point. You see, it's not about me. We want people, when they come through the doors, to take a second look at God in the church and go, anybody ever done that? You take a second look at something? Maybe you're going down the interstate and you're like, what? Right? Or, or maybe you're a guy and you took a second look and you should have. You shouldn't have. You know what I'm saying? All right. Or you, you saw a wreck on the interstate and you're like, whoa, what happened? We want people to go like this with God. Yeah, that would mean that he would have to be the draw. He's not. Your coffee is, your entertainment is, your fun is. But God isn't the draw. In fact... You know, it's more like he's kind of like covered up by all of your entertainment, coffee, and fun. But the reason they would be showing up is not because of God, but because of all that other stuff. They're not there to learn about God. They're there for all that other stuff. I thought God was this way. But I come to this place and I hear he's something totally opposite. I think I want to connect with him more. Or they think, you know what, the church has to be this. And they, whoa, I didn't know this could be this way. That's huge. We want to change their preconceived ideas about what God and the church is. And that's huge. And let me tell you, we don't do this because it's easy. We had um, the lady who's running Soundforce, her name is Christy. She was here on Friday morning while school was in setting stuff up. We had people here last night setting stuff up. At 6 o'clock in the morning, we had people here setting stuff up. Dear Lord, right? And we don't do it because it's easy. We don't do it because it's cheap. We do it because we know this, that we know that somebody that you love, a Facebook friend, a family member, a coworker, somebody that you just kind of have a casual relationship with, they're going to show up. And they're going to be looking for a reason never, ever to come back and to turn their back, not just on one church, but on God. And we, uh, they, what do you mean? They, they've already turned their back on God. They're dead in trespasses and sins. We want them 
to take a second look at God and to rethink, wow, is church? Man, I mean, seriously, go back and listen to Cy Van Man, uh, sorry, Cy Ten Bruggenkate's lecture on presuppositional apologetics. This is ridiculous. We want them to give God a second chance or a second look or whatever. Who's, who's judging God here? The unbeliever is. This isn't Christian. Does it have to? We don't do any of this because it's cool. We do it because we want people, unchurched and dechurched, to hang out here. All right? Let me give you a challenge, and then I'm done. And this is a challenge. Very simply this. And Patrick Fowler, who's getting ready to come out on stage. Patrick, come on out if you wouldn't mind. Um, Patrick, he gave me, after reading this, he says, this is what you ought to end on. And this is what he said. He says this. When is the last time you decided to be in a group where you were uncomfortable being in that group, but you were there because God called you to be there, not because you could get anything out of it? Let me repeat that again. When was the last time you decided to be in a group where you were uncomfortable with those people, but the reason why you were there because God called you to be there, not because you could get anything from them? You see... In this whole story, I believe the whole point of this story really wasn't about Cornelius' conversion. It was about Peter's conversion. Peter had to rethink. And one of the things I'm... Uh, That's weird because, again, when you read the rest of the story and you get into chapter 11, uh, the big punchline is that God has granted even the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. Who was converted? Um, yeah, that would be uh, Cornelius was converted. Now, this is God clearly demonstrating to the Apostle Peter that the Gentile missions need to kick off. Because remember when Jesus said, you know, to go and make disciples of all nations, and he, you know, in, uh, in Luke 24, he said, um, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations starting in Jerusalem. So the idea here is is that you know Jesus's orders made it clear that everything kicks off in Jerusalem in the you know to the Jews and then eventually would work out to all nations. This again there's so much wrong with this when you just connect the dots biblically in context the things he's saying cannot be justified. I'm praying that you would do with us today. Rethink rethink This whole idea about, you know what, it always has to be this way, or it has to be my preferences, or it has to be, there's, when it comes to the church and the Bible, there's a, there's very little has to be's. The biggest thing it has to be is connecting with everyone. Jesus' mission, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. All right, a couple of questions and I'll be done. Can you discuss the groups that are held on Sunday nights? And yeah, absolutely I can. Um, I'll tell you this. We have small groups here at one church. And one of the things that he'll come on now, I like that. That's sweet. I will tell you this. If you, ha- if you could give us only one hour, I would prefer you not show up on Sunday morning, but you go to a community group. Because we believe that life is done better in circles, not in rows. See, here's what... I know some of you, and I can embarrass you, but I won't, but you don't know the people behind you, and you really don't know the people sitting next to you because this environment is not created for that. But let me tell you, small groups is a place where you can connect. 
And that's the whole point. So I'll tell you, if you're interested in small groups, Patrick, he's our small groups pastor. Let me tell you what my boy Pat's going to be doing. Afterwards, Patrick's going to be at the giving kiosk right out there, and he's going to be there to answer any questions you have about taking that next step. We believe that the church is for everyone. And when you show up, there are some people in here who you know all of the books of the Bible. And you know all of those, those big words I mentioned earlier. That's cool. I want you to know that. Um, but there are other people who know nothing. When I say David and Goliath, hey, you remember that story? They're like, uh-uh, I don't know that story. We want to get everybody in the room, and we want everybody to be challenged. But if you're the ones who knows all those big words, you're probably not going to be challenged in here. We want to encourage you to take your next step. And again, remember, you're going. Once you start going, you're going to start growing. And there are different other steps that, again, my friend Patrick can get you involved in, either leading a community group, leading a starting point orientation. There's all kinds of stuff you can be doing. There you go. Kind of the uh, propaganda and false Bible twisting that goes along with the seeker-driven movement. This is standard fare and how they twist the Bible to justify the unjustifiable in what they're doing in, quote, church. What'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>